quick check of the headlines kind of reveals to us all sorts of things going on in our world that aren't good. The headlines that aren't good don't even take into consideration things that may be going on in our personal lives. All of us are dealing with various kinds of issues. We're dealing with stress from family, from finances, from health, any number of other things. We're dealing from stress and the suffering of others, the loss of loved ones. Uh, they're, the way the, the things that are stressing us out, the way the things that are difficult in our lives could be played out is as numerous as the people in this room. And in fact, it would be more than even one. I bet many of us have more than one thing that is difficult in our life at the moment. It's not just one thing going on. It's multiple things going on, not even taking into consideration all that's going on in the world. And what I want to tell you today as we start this study in the Gospel of Mark is that despite all that's going on in the world and all that may be going on in our lives, there is good news for us today. Open your Bible to Mark 1. We're going to look at the first eight verses. should be on page 761 if you have a pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Mark 1 and 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Just as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I am sending my messenger before you who will prepare your way. The voice of one calling out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness and preach, uh, appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching, saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to bend down and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The title of the message this morning is Good News. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you for the opportunity we have to gather and to study your word. We thank you that in your word we do find good news for us in our life today. Good news that doesn't change in spite of the circumstances. Good news that doesn't change despite what the world has going on. Good news that is good news for all who will repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, Father, let your spirit come and take your word and use it to strengthen us and to encourage us in Christ. Lord, we live in a world where, Lord, there are many troubles represented among the people here today. There are many troubles just in the world going on today. And Father, we must be built and rooted and grounded in Jesus if we're going to keep from being shaken. We're going to continually have joy despite any sorrow, difficulty going on in our lives. So today, send your Holy Spirit. Let Him take your word. Make it living and active in our lives to convict us where we need convicting, to encourage us where we need encouraging, to strengthen us where we need strengthening, just to help us in any way we need helping. Fill me with your Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech that I would speak your words and your ways for your glory. Have your way in all of our hearts. And Lord, we will give you all the glory for you alone deserve it. And we ask all these things in the mighty name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Now, each gospel was written with a particular audience and a particular goal in mind. Matthew was largely written for Jews to show Jesus was the Messiah. 
This is why he gives the genealogy of Jesus, starting with Abraham, tracing him through David and Solomon. This is to show Jesus' right to the throne of David, who the Messiah would be the son of David. Matthew's audience and his goal of showing them Jesus as the Messiah is why he also repeatedly says some variation of that it might be fulfilled. He was continually showing throughout his gospel that Jesus fulfilled the messianic prophecy so the Jews would believe Jesus was their Messiah. Luke was written by a Greek man for a Greek man named Theopolis. It was written to give Theopolis absolute certainty about the things he had heard about Jesus, that they were indeed true. Now, Greeks accepted the idea of many gods, and since that was the case, Luke focuses on Jesus being God and man, which would make him unique among anything the Greeks understood about how the world worked. In fact, Luke pictures Jesus as the perfect man. This is why Luke's genealogy of Jesus begins with Adam, and he frequently refers to Jesus as the Son of Man. Now, we all know Christianity started among the Jews. Uh, most that were believers, especially on the day of Pentecost, up at that point, they were Jewish people. But it didn't stay among the Jewish people, thankfully. It began to spread among the Greeks. And as it began to spread among the Greeks, there was a problem. The Greeks didn't understand Jewish theology. They had no idea of a Jewish Messiah. They had no concept of God's covenant people and God sending someone to redeem the world. So how would Jewish Christians present their Messiah to the Greeks in a way they would have both understood, they would both understand and embrace. Well, that's where we get the Apostle John and his encounter or his account of Jesus's life, death, his words, his ministry and his resurrection. John's gospel was written as an apologetic to convince skeptics Jesus was the son of God so they would believe in him and through him have salvation. And then we have Mark where we're at today. Mark writes to Romans to convince them about the person and the work of Jesus. Mark is a gospel of action. If you have read through the gospel of Mark at all, you know that the most repeated word in the gospel of Mark is immediately. Jesus is always immediately doing something in Mark's gospel. This is intentional. Uh, This is because Romans were a people of action. They cared more about power and action than they cared about lineage. Therefore, Mark does not have any lineage of Jesus. Mark chooses to move quickly from the introduction of Jesus as the Son of God to the supernatural power of Jesus. Mark emphasizes the power of Jesus over sickness, death, and demonic forces. Mark highlights the authority in the way Jesus taught far more Then he talks about the content of Jesus' teachings. Certainly, some of Jesus' teaching is mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. But moreover, Mark focuses on he taught with authority. He taught with power. Because Romans cared more about authority and power than they did about long, drawn-out teachings. Mark emphasizes Jesus as a servant on the move who instantly and consistently obeys the will of his Father. The Gospel of Mark reminds us Jesus calls us to a life of discipleship built upon our faith and our obedience. We believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Therefore, we obey Him. And in that faith and in that obedience, we live out what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Mark continually highlights the power, the greatness, and the authority of Jesus so that it will compel us to obey Jesus because we are confident He has the power to do whatever he said 
he would do. The Gospel of Mark challenges us not only to know what Jesus has said, but to do what Jesus has said to do. The Gospel of Mark not only helps us to know Jesus, but challenges us and equips us to live our lives as Jesus lived his. The Gospel of Mark opens with a simple phrase, the beginning. The beginning. The words that follow are not simple. They are rather profound and they are powerful. They are life changing if we understand in the beginning of the gospel. Now, gospel is a familiar word to anyone who's been in church for any length of time. But what we may forget is the word gospel could literally be translated as good news. Right away, Mark lets us know what he's going to talk about is good news. What is the good news? Well, the good news is Jesus. The beginning of the good news of Jesus, the son of God. Jesus is the good news. The good news is about Jesus. Right. So two takeaways from this is first, Jesus is the gospel. Right? And when we talk about the gospel, we always have to talk about Jesus. The gospel is not some nebulous truth. The gospel is a very specific thing. It is a message about the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Right. So all things in God's word ultimately truly point to Jesus. The Old Testament are always pointing us to the Messiah who's coming. That, that's the point of everything God did in the Old Testament was to tell about the Messiah, prepare the way for the Messiah. Then when we get to the ones we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, it's the revelation. The Messiah has come. This is who he is. This is what he did. This is what he was like. And then Acts through Jude tells us, here's the difference Jesus makes in your life. Here's the difference it makes because Jesus has come. And then Revelation, as we saw last year, reminds us the coming Christ is still the coming Christ. And we look for his coming again. The gospel, the message of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus has life changing power. And all of this is good news for our world today. The second idea I take from this is Jesus is good news. Not only is Jesus the good news, but Jesus himself is good news. Everything about Jesus is good news. His sinless life is good news for those who have sinned and fallen short of God's righteous standard. His sacrificial death is good news for those who have sinned and earned the wage of sin, which is death. His victorious resurrection is good news for those who seek life and life more abundantly. His life-changing power is good news for those who realize how far they've strayed and they have no power to correct themselves. His power over demons is good news for those who know what it is to live in spiritual darkness and long to get into the light. Everything about Jesus is good news. Everything Jesus does is good news. Everything Jesus teaches is good news. Everything Jesus calls on us to do is good news. And so the central truth we need to know today, Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the good news. This passage, because Jesus is the focus, teaches us two ways to live in light of Jesus being the good news. Number one, embrace Jesus as the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is He? He is the Son of God. Of God. Now, everything 
What it tells us about John in the next few verses is meant to emphasize that Jesus is the, Messiah, the Son of God, the, the coming Messiah. Right? Just as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I'm sending my messenger before you who will prepare your way. The voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. These are prophecies in the Old Testament to talk about the coming of the Messiah and what would happen just before the Messiah came. Mark uses two different Old Testament references. Both speak of someone coming before the Messiah, before the Son of God, to prepare people for His coming. This was the point of John's ministry. John's ministry, the point of John's ministry wasn't John. The point of John's ministry was to prepare the hearts of the people for the Messiah who was to come. He was to prepare people to repent of their sins, to believe in Jesus. The ministry of John was going to be different than all who had come before him. And the ministry of Jesus was going to be different even from that of John and any who had ever come before him. Jesus' ministry would be one of grace instead of law. It would be one of miracles. It would be one of, of being radically different than what the religious leaders understood the Messiah would be. And so if Jesus had just come on the scene, the people would not have understood. And so God had planned to send somebody to to tenderize the heart, so to speak. John comes preaching his message of repentance to get people's hearts and minds ready for the Messiah who was to come. He was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Of course, we, and we'll talk about repentance again later, but repentance is a change of mind about God and sin resulting in a change of life. Right, and for John, this change of life was necessary. Mark's gospel doesn't give us the account of this, but in Luke's account, the people ask him, if we've repented, what do we do now? And he says, bear fruit consistent with repentance. And they said, how do we do that? And he said, well, instead of being greedy, share with others. And if you're a tax collector, only exact what you're supposed to exact. And if you're a Roman soldier, quit oppressing people. Just quit doing what's wrong and start doing what you know to be right. Change. Let your repentance be seen in the life you live. Now, in this particular instance, the first evidence of repentance was submitting to John's water baptism. It symbolized their repentance. It symbolized that their sorrow for their sins committed. And it was a pledge. It was a pledge to live out their repentance. They, they were not only sorry with their mouths, they were sorry. And they would live differently because of that. They had gone under the water and they would come out and now they would bear fruit consistent with genuine repentance. Everything about John's message, his ministry, and even his looks. Look at verse 6. He was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his weight. His diet was locusts and wild honey. John was an Unusual looking man, to say the least. But John's looks were reminiscent of Elijah and Elisha. They were to hearken the people back to the great prophets of old, who in fact were different. They weren't like the normal or the the nominal believers of their day. John's was different. It was to hearken back. Now, with this, keep in mind, there had been like 400 years of silence from Malachi To John the Baptist, there had not arisen a single prophet of God in like 400, 450 years. God had not spoken at all to his people. They had rebelled. They had turned away. They were in punishment. And God had gone silent. 
And so false prophets had arisen, but they had not lasted. So John comes and he is reminding them of the true prophet of God. He is preaching, thus saith the Lord. And the people are listening. The people are looking. Everything about John is he is a prophet, a servant, the Most High God. But John's ministry was to continually point people to Jesus. Right? John was a prophet of the Most High God, but John wasn't the point. Look at what he says in uh, verse 7. After me is one coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to, bit down, I am not fit to bend down and untie the straps of his sandals. Now that's a, that's a servant's job. Right? To untie the sandals of another person was a servant's job. The prophets were servants of the Most High God. The one that was coming after John, who was a prophet. John said, I'm not even worthy to be his servant. It was all of this. Everything John was doing was pointing to Jesus, preparing the way for Jesus. Everything about John, his ministry, his message, his looks, all of it was unique. All of it drew attention. All the people went to him. It says that they went out in verse 5. All the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. And the picture is not that they, they went out once, but it was this consistent, continual stream of people. And, and I would say probably it wasn't like people went out once and then they went back to their lives. I think the picture is people went out to hear John. And they listened to him preach all day and some were baptized. And then they went home. And then the next day they just couldn't get enough. So they went back out again and they took friends with them. And so there was this continual stream of people traveling to hear this strange man hoop and holler in the wilderness. To take them out into the water and to baptize them. And so they they continually came. They were continually being baptized. And all of this was to point to the fact Jesus was the Son of God. He was preparing their hearts, preparing their minds for the Messiah, the Son of God, who was to come. Embracing Jesus as the Son of God is critical to being a disciple of Jesus, to being saved. A critical part of the good news about Jesus is the fact He is the Son of God. Jesus would not be good news if He was just a man. Jesus would not be the good news if He was just a prophet. Jesus would not be good news if He was just a miracle worker. In order for Jesus to be the good news, He had to be the Son of God. And the Bible tells us how we can be sure of this, that Jesus is the Son of God. Right? Because people would question, how can we be sure? The Son of God came and, and Jesus, we know, died a miserable death. He was crucified on a cross. He was laid in a tomb. And how do we know Jesus was the Son of God and not just another Jew the Romans crucified? Because the Romans crucified Jews every single day that they ruled over Judea. Every day, Jews were taken out on the hill and they were nailed to the cross and they were left to die. What makes Jesus unique? Well, Paul gives us the answer. Paul, he's a bondservant of Christ Jesus. He's called to be an apostle. He's set apart for the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. It was all about Jesus, who was born of the descendant of David according to flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
The resurrection of Jesus is the greatest proof. He is the Son of God who became the Lamb of God and died for our sins. The fact of the matter is Jesus' death would have no real significance other than the tragedy of someone dying unjustly if it were not for His resurrection. Jesus' resurrection declares in a powerful way He is the Son of God who died for the sins of the world and now offers redemption for all who would believe on Him. His being the Son of God, His dying for our sins, His rising from the dead, all of this is why Jesus is the good news. But before we'll experience the good of the good news, we must embrace Jesus as the Son of God. And then secondly, seek Jesus for the Spirit of God. Verse 7, John says, He's not worthy to untie the straps of Jesus' sandals. Uh, John always understood his point, his purpose. John always understood he wasn't the point, he wasn't the purpose. It was all about Jesus. Everything he did was to point to and prepare the way for Jesus. I think in a lot of ways, John is such a great example for any of us in our service and our devotion to Jesus. Because at no point in time are we ever the point. Are we ever the focus? We are here to point people to Jesus. We're not the light, as John would say, but we're here to point people to the true light who's coming into the world. And so that's a great example for us to follow. But John says the reason, one of the reasons Jesus is better is because Jesus offers a better baptism. John is going to baptize with water, but Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Just as John the Baptist invited all to repent of their sins and receive water baptism to to demonstrate their repentance and commit themselves to live in light of their repentance, Jesus invites all to come to Him in repentance and receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John's baptism symbolized repentance. Jesus' baptism gives new life. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is for every disciple of Jesus. It's not for a small group of super saints. And a big part of what this means is every church is meant to be filled with spirit-filled, spirit-led, spirit-empowered disciples of Jesus. Not just one or two. Not just a few that are extra special Every person who has repented of their sins, believed in Jesus Christ, has been baptized by the Spirit and is meant to be Spirit-filled and Spirit-led. This is what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. He told them to repent, to be baptized in the name of Jesus, forgiveness of their sins, and they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the promise, which is the Holy Spirit, is for you, for your children, for all who are far away, And as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. The promise of the Holy Spirit, He says to them, is for you. Now, we we can forget the significance of this. In the Old Testament, every Old Testament faithful believer didn't have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit primarily resided on kind of three kinds of people in the Old Testament. It resided on kings. He resided, not it. He resided on kings. He came upon the high priest. The Holy Spirit came upon prophets. And then occasionally the Holy Spirit would come upon judges. But even in those cases, in those four instances, the Holy Spirit never dwelt with anyone permanently. 
He would come upon the prophet and they would speak, thus saith the word of the Lord, and then the Holy Spirit would depart from them. The Holy Spirit would come upon the judge and he would do great deeds in the name of the Lord, then the Holy Spirit would depart from them. But it was rare. So for these people to hear this promise is for you and your children and those who are far away and as many people throughout history, throughout time, that the Lord our God will call to himself. This promise of the Holy Spirit is for all. This would have been life altering to them to imagine having the Holy Spirit come upon them and live in them. But this is what the promise is. Now, in Acts 2.33, Peter explicitly says it was Jesus who poured out the Holy Spirit that they were seeing in that moment. Right. So here, Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, Jesus is the one who poured out the Holy Spirit. So if we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, if we want to be led of the Holy Spirit, we, we don't seek the Holy Spirit. We seek Jesus. We seek Jesus who gives, who pours out the Holy Spirit upon his people. And there are three primary reasons Jesus baptizes every believer with the Holy Spirit when they believe. First is regeneration. Right. We're not familiar with John three about being born again. Jesus said to Nicodemus, truly, I say unto you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a person be born when he is old? Can't be. He can't enter his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of the water and the spirit cannot enter the kingdom of God. In order for a person to be saved, in order for a person to be in the kingdom, to have their part in the kingdom of God, they must be baptized in the Holy Spirit. There is a a work the Holy Spirit does in the life of a person who comes to Jesus in repentance and faith that changes us to the very core of our being, makes us into a, a new creation. And this is being born again. This is something we cannot do on our own. This is something that no matter how many good leaves we turn over, no matter how many New Year's resolutions we make, no matter how many times we determine to do better, we can't do this. This is a work of God that comes to us through the Holy Spirit. We must be born again or we cannot enter the kingdom of God. We will not go to heaven when we die. We cannot be religious enough. We cannot be moral enough. We must be born of the Spirit. And so Jesus, He baptizes us with the Spirit the moment we're saved and we repent and we believe and we call upon Him. But that is only the beginning of the Spirit's work in the life of a disciple of Jesus. Not only is there regeneration, but there is sanctification. But the moment we're saved, we're, we're not perfect. We're not all we should be. The end goal of our lives is to be like Jesus in, in every way. In our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our actions, in our values, our priorities. There is no area of our life where we're not supposed to act like Jesus. How do we get there? Do we just do a whole bunch of stuff? Well, no. Thankfully, it's not up to us. Instead, it talks about in the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared. He saved us. Not the basis of deeds, which we did in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Now here's being born again by the washing of regeneration. And, so there's something more. The renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Sanctification is the the process of becoming like 
Jesus. Sanctification is not something we do on our own. It is something we do in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. Primarily the way sanctification works is this. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and applies it to our life. And the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and says, here's what you believe, but you're wrong. You need to believe this instead. Here's what you're doing, but you're wrong. You need to stop doing that. Here's what you're not doing, but you're wrong. You need to be doing this instead. Here's an attitude you have. You need to have this attitude instead. In that moment, we have a decision to make. Will we cooperate with the Holy Spirit and submit to His guidance in our lives and thus become more like Jesus? Or will we resist and rebel against the Holy Spirit and Really, we don't stay the same. We tend to drift back into being more carnal and more worldly. Sanctification is the process. It is something we are to cooperate with the Spirit of God as He deals with us to make us more like the Son of God. Sanctification changes our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions, our speech. No part of our life is not changed through sanctification, so we'll be more like Jesus. But there's not only regeneration, sanctification... There's also impartation. The Bible says there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. But the one and same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. The moment we're saved, we repent of our sins, we believe in Jesus Christ, we're born again, we're regenerated. At that moment, the Holy Spirit comes to reside within us and He imparts a gift to us. Right? Notice, to each one. So each one of us, if you're a child of God, if you have been truly born again, there is a spiritual gift you have been given. Now notice the purpose here of this spiritual gift. It is for the common good. And this is, I think, an important point. My spiritual gifts are, are, are not two things, right? They're not for my glory. They're not to elevate me and make me think I'm better than everyone else. And they're not for me to say, I've got me and Jesus and the Holy Ghost. I don't need the church. The spiritual gifts are given for the common good. My spiritual gifts have been given to me for the common good of the church. Your spiritual gifts have been given to you for the common good of the church. No one person has every spiritual gift needed to do all that needs to be done to win Guyman for Christ. Much less Guyman, Goodwill, Texoma, Hooker, and the ends of the earth. Instead, and I wish we had time, but we don't. God builds a, a complementary system, I guess you could say. The way God builds the church together is, even with however many we may have in our church, you think, I wish we could do more, I wish we could do that. But right now, in what we have as a church body, we have every gift we need to do everything God wants us to do at this moment. The greatest need in any church in the world today is not more born again Spirit-filled, gifted believers. I mean, that's always good, but that's not the greatest need. You know what the greatest need is? For every born-again, spirit-filled believer 
to rise up and use their gifts for the glory of God and the common good. Every church in America and the world, I suppose, operates on a basis of about 20% of the people do 100% of the work, do about 80 or more percent of the work. In almost every church, there are people who are gifted by the Spirit of God and they do not use those gifts for the glory of God to serve the Son of God in any noticeable way. That is a terrible shame to be seen. And I won't get into the fact we're stewards and we're going to be accountable. I don't have time for that. But notice, the reason I get to the Spirit with this is because the one and same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. So it's the Holy Spirit who gives us these gifts. Right? It's not we determine we're going to do it, but the Holy Spirit, who is not the force, He makes a, a sovereign decision and He chooses what gift we have that we need that's needed in the church at that time. So the Holy Spirit imparts to us a spiritual gift. And I think I said three, um, but there's actually four. And the last one is activation. Now, activation, I mean empower, but I wanted them all to rhyme. So I use activation. But I say walk in the Spirit and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I use these two verses simply because... Or these three verses, simply because I think they're a broad, overarching view. And the point here is, there is nothing Jesus will lead us to do that the Holy Spirit will not lead us, empower us to accomplish. And there is nothing Jesus will call us to become that the Holy Spirit will not empower us to become that. Now again, I think this is, to me this is huge. This is also a huge thing, right? Because... Jesus calls on us to be a lot of things that aren't natural to me. He calls on us to be forgiving. He calls on us to turn the other cheek. I don't know about y'all. Turn the other cheek is not my natural course of action. How can I do that? The Holy Spirit will enable me to. To love. I mean, and, and we don't, gosh, we don't have time, but think about the way the Bible talks about love. Not I love my daughters. Not I love my wife. Not I love my church. That's great. I should love all of those people. The Bible does talk about that. Love those who hate you. Love those who despitefully use you. Can, can you do that on your own? Is that a natural thing you can muster up? But look at the first fruit of the Spirit. It's love. Jesus calls on us to be, even in the midst of sorrow, to be always rejoicing. I don't know about you, but some of the sorrow I've experienced, it's hard to find joy in that moment. How do we do that? Well, it's up there. If we just look at the news, I mean, anxiety. We're an anxious culture right now. I bet, I bet there are more people on Prozac in America today, just this year, than there have been in the history of America combined. Why? Because the news is forever going, we're all going to die. This is bad. Oh my goodness. And we are consumers. We just eat that junk up. And so our hearts just, oh my gosh, oh we are going to die, you're right. How do we have peace in the midst of a crazy, chaotic world? The Holy Spirit. Right? This is who Jesus intends for us to be, but it's not a matter of us knuckling it under. It's a matter of what the Holy Spirit can do in us 
and through us and for us. Nothing Jesus calls on us to do are we expected to do on our own. We do all of it through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Nothing Jesus calls on us to be are we expected to knuckle it under and become that on our own. Rather, it's the Holy Spirit who empowers us to become these things. Now, obviously, this doesn't cover every particular action the Holy Spirit does in and through us as disciples of Jesus. But I would say that if we took everything he did and we boiled it down into categories, it would fall into one of these three, one of these three categories after regeneration. There is no question Jesus wants to give us the Holy Spirit. He baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. There is no question the Holy Spirit can enable us to do all of these things, to be all that Jesus wants us to be. The only real question is, do I want the Holy Spirit to do these things in me and through me and for me? Now, the reality is there are some people who don't. They are content to live in the flesh. While professing faith in Jesus. They are content to never find and use their spiritual gifts. They're content to only be what they can be naturally. They are are content to stay the same. They think they're already like Jesus. They're going to be the same yesterday, today and forever. And they don't want the Holy Spirit to sanctify them. And they don't want the Holy Spirit to impart a gift to them. And they don't want the Holy Spirit to empower them to be and to do what Jesus would have them be and to do. That's a reality. That I have met people just like that. So the question before us isn't, can this stuff happen in our lives? The question for all of us is, do I want this to happen in me and through me and for me? Do I really want the more that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit? And if we determine we do, then what we have to do is seek Jesus. Jesus, on the last and great day of the feast, he stood and he cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But he said this in reference to the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet Glorified. Now, I love this passage, but I just want to point out a couple of things and we'll close. If anyone is thirsty, there's a desire there, a want for the living water of the Spirit. Are you thirsty for the more? Are you thirsty for the fruit of the Spirit to be evident in your life? Are you thirsty to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh? Are you thirsty to know your spiritual gift and use it for the glory of God? Are you thirsty to be more and more like Jesus? Are you thirsty to be being filled with the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians? Are are you thirsty for those things? If the answer is yes, then here's what we do. Let Let Him come to me and drink. Again, I love the simplicity of this verse. The one who, the one, let him come to me and drink. Do you want it? Go to Jesus and he gives it. Not he might. Not he could. Not even he probably will. If you come, he'll give you. If you gotta believe. Now you do have to believe. That's a key part, right? Those who believe in me. So, if I want 
the fullness of the Spirit in this way, what we've talked about today. I'm thirsty for it. If I believe it's real, that the Bible, that God is a master of communication and He is able to say what He means and mean what He says. And if I go to Jesus, He will give me the fruit of the Spirit in my life. He will give me the Spirit so I can walk in the Spirit. He will give me the Spirit so I will know and can live in light of my gift in the Spirit. He will, give, he will give me the Spirit so that I can be sanctified and be ever more like Jesus. Now the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the initial baptism, that's automatic. We don't go and ask for another baptism of the Holy Spirit. We go to Jesus in repentance and faith. We're baptized in the Holy Spirit. We're brought into the body of Christ. The rest of this is a continual seeking. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to know and use my gifts for your glory. I, I want to be empowered to live the way I ought to live. And we don't seek the Spirit. We seek Jesus. And as we seek Jesus, He pours out more and more of the Holy Spirit within us. And the Holy Spirit will fill us and empower us. And He will enable us to do everything Jesus wants us to do. And He will enable us to be everything Jesus wants us to be. The baptism of John could not accomplish these things. Only the baptism of Jesus, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is able to accomplish this. Every disciple of Jesus who wants the fullness of the Spirit to come in them, to do these things in them, through them, and for them, can have it. Every one of us, if we're truly a disciple of Jesus... We can be filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do all of these things we've looked at and so many more. But it's given to those who are thirsty for it. It is given to those who seek Jesus for it. Do you want to be filled and empowered and led by the Holy Spirit? If so, pray for it. Cry out to Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit to fill us to lead us and empower us daily. There's a, a meme on Facebook, which I don't often preach memes, but there's a meme on Facebook, and it says, do you need the Holy Spirit to go to heaven? And the answer is, brother, you need the Holy Spirit to go to Walmart. And that is really the way it is. We are not ever going to be anywhere near what Jesus has for us to be apart from this filling and empowering of the Holy Spirit. There is more if we'll seek it, if we'll cry out to it. Jesus is the good news because He is the Son of God. And as such, He is able to do all He said He would do. This includes filling us with the Holy Spirit so we can be who He wants us to be and do what He wants us to do. So the question I'm going to leave us with is do we want the Holy Spirit? I'm going to assume we've all embraced Jesus as the Son of God. No visitors today. All have been a part of this church for years and years and years. All have told me at various times you've made professions of faith. You're born again. So that's not a question I have for us today. The question is, do we want the Spirit? Do we want the fullness of the Spirit? Do we want all Jesus can do in us, through us, and for us through the Spirit? If so, then during our time of response, cry out for that. I'll ask you to stand as our... I'm not going to have our musicians come because I didn't prepare them for that. Just a moment...
pray, a moment to respond. And I, I would say, if you want the Spirit, then cry out for it. But I would say, if you don't want the Spirit in this way, you really should ask, why? Why wouldn't someone who's been born of God want everything God intends for them to have? That would be a good question to wrestle with. Why would a child of God want all the gifts that are theirs through Christ? Surely, lack of wanting what God intends to give is a sign something is not right. Let's just cry out to the Lord.